Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. We're back with the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. This is episode 146, 146. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, and my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, it is uh, it's an interesting day today. Um, Friday, when, when I, I left, I'd get my, my tooth pulled. Uh, oil was you know, around $44, $45 a barrel, maybe maybe a little higher. So, uh, next time I checked, it was bad news. You know, I, I, knew, I knew it was bad because um, I, I sent someone a text. I said, hey, if you want to walk me off the ledge, that would be, and I said that, that would be a great uh, gift. And this person sent back, I wish I could. This is very bad. And that person, of course, is our guest today, David Blackman. David, it's been a few days. Are you ready to walk me off the ledge, or, or <laughs> do we need to up the life insurance policies? Well, um, I'm not sure we need to update our life insurance policies just yet, but uh, we're pretty close to a ledge here. <laughs> <laughs> about so let's you know, it's go, a bad go situation. Yeah, so one thing we talked about in our pre-show meeting was we want to kind of have this conversation, and we've got you for an extended period of time today, but we want to make sure that we kind of talk about it from multiple standpoints. So we have the folks who are on the ground working out there on you know in the field. We have kind of the managers, the CEOs, the you know the, the kind of the corporate types, and then you have the kind of the investor types. So we kind of have a wide range of listeners. So when we talk today, let's try to make sure we kind of hit it from different perspectives because the impact um, of what we're seeing here is going to vary depending on kind of where you fit into the game. But let's let's go back in the history just a little bit here. Um, Josh and I have talked on the show extensively kind of about this idea of coming out the last downturn, you know, it's kind of like getting a, a big zero F on your grade. And, um, you know, if you have long enough and you make good enough grades, you can rebound from that. Um, but, but and we felt like before the coronavirus and all stuff going into this year, that later on this year might be the time for show producers who could uh, withstand that to, to make it because, you know, we feel like the prices are, you know, drilling would kind of slow down, production might come down, prices would go up, um, and it'd be good for show producers. But this is, I don't know, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if it's, like it's going to be a zero F, but it's, a, it's another F. <laughs> so, oh, uh, yeah. Um, what, what do you think is, um, kind of break down the, the news for folks who may not heard and kind of, your analysis of the news and what should we expect from the, the show producers uh, this week? Well, I, you know, I think uh, the shale producers, you know, most companies are going to give this situation with Saudi Arabia and Russia a, a few days, at least maybe a week or two to shake itself out. Uh, Russia has a history of, you know, blowing up, refusing to a deal, agree to these OPEC plus deals, and then a few days later coming back and agreeing to a modified deal. Um, that could potentially happen here. Uh, there has been news reports over the weekend that, you know, that Russia was continuing to cooperate with the OPEC plus countries and monitoring the market. And um, that to me means they're still engaged and maybe looking for an alternative to just blowing the whole thing up. And the Saudis, you know, their reaction um, uh, is irrational. Just frankly, it was in 2014, too, when they tanked the markets. From their standpoint and, and their sovereign wealth fund and, you know, the way their country makes money, this is a completely irrational act on their part to announce they're going to flood the market again. But, you know, uh, they stuck with their guns for a year in 2014 and 2015, and it had 
major negative consequences for, for the industry here in the U.S. So, you know, my hope is that Saudi Arabia is uh, bluffing, um, trying to get Russia back to the table to negotiate a, you know, a smaller cut <clears throat> in exports. They had proposed 1.5 million a day, you know, maybe get them to agree to something less than that. And, um, you know, get this thing going again. But uh, if the Russians don't cooperate, there, there's really nothing OPEC and Saudi Arabia can do about it. So we'll just have to see. Okay. So one of the former guests that we had on the show, uh, Dr. Anas Haji, sent in this to the show this morning. There is no end in sight in the oil market. If OPEC plus negotiations in June doesn't work out, then we, we have to wait until the market corrects itself sowing the seeds for a fourth, for the forthcoming energy crisis. So from Anas's perspective, it seems that he's saying that he doesn't feel confident that the, the uh, OPEC plus meeting on uh, March 18th is – and that's not a binding meeting, if I understand correctly anyway. So they'd make a proposal. Um, of course, OPEC can call a special, special security uh, – special meeting or, or whatever you want to call it. Sure. But, but, but uh, the March 18th date is going to be kind of thrown around, but I guess we should be also say that it's not – we need something – extraordinary i guess to happen um the next meeting is not really the meeting that that's gonna that's it's not it's not a binding meeting is that correct oh it's 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 not today uh but but the opec plus ministers could change all that tomorrow i mean you know right 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 this is a group that uh you know they have bylaws and rules and all that but you know a simple majority vote within their group can change what the nature of that march 18th meeting but yeah, if they leave it to June, then we're going to see oil prices crash down. Oil prices crash down into the twenties and stay there until June, and that, um, you know, that will have a very significant, very significant right negative impacts on the domestic U.S. industry. So let's talk about the folks on the ground, folks out there who listen to the show. They're they're working on a rig, or you know, or like Josh and I in the service business. Um, you know, when how, how should they think about this? Should they be going okay? Uh, get the they get the resume ready. Uh, okay, if it's only two weeks, maybe we can withstand it. Um, how should they kind of evaluate this? Because these are the folks that are, you know, that make this country and you know, kind of the backbone of society, if you will. But but right now, yep. there, there's a lot of there's a lot of fear from that side as well. So let's talk to them for a second. Well, I you know I was in the industry for 40 years. I always kept my resume updated. <laughs> I, I never actually needed it, but you know, you were always kind of on pins and needles. The, the market can change on a moment's notice. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that the first thing that would start to happen if producers decide this is going to be a long-term deal in service companies is you would begin to see scaling back on the number of drilling rigs, obviously, and the number of frack crews. That means layoffs in both the upstream and service industry. Uh, it would mean production levels rather than rising as they have consistently over the past four years to, you know, would, overall production levels would begin to fall and, and you could have, you know, pipeline companies <clears throat> start to suffer, may, may, you know, significant major impacts from that and having to lower their rates and thus lowering their income. And it's just this chain reaction that, that works its way from the upstream all the way down to the refining sector. Yeah, and you could even see impacts if you had, if this lingered on for a year and you ended up with significant uh, reduction in production from the Permian Basin, then you could see impacts on the ports uh, and the employment there. But, you know, that's a long way off. 
uh, and it's all speculation. But uh, in the past, when we've had busts like this could cause, uh, those those have been kind of how that chain reaction goes. So if I was, you know, a field worker, yeah, I'd be updating my resume. Um, but I wouldn't uh, just, you know, necessarily think that that you're going to you lose your job tomorrow because this could all turn around very quickly. Yeah, and that's the second. Let's, let's kind of talk about that. We, you've kind of laid out some potentials to see this thing turn around, but um, do do you feel like you know we're not coming off of a hundred dollar oil here? We're coming off of fifty five dollar oil, basically. Um, it feels like the the response time for the producers, which it, it's a good thing and it's a bad thing, I guess that that the producers will have to decide what they're going to do with, like you said, maybe the next week or two because they can't <laughs> they they can't. You know, we're staying this uh, like they could maybe in, in uh, 2014. Uh, if you go back to then, you, you remember reading articles. Harold Ham sold all of his hedges thinking, oh, the price is going to go back up. Well, th- those companies aren't in those, those positions today. So it feels like um, whatever the companies are going to decide to do, they're going to have to decide if they feel like, if there is no news out of the Russia, out of the Saudis, out of OPEC, it feels like they're going to have to decide in the next two or three weeks. And if you start to hear the bad news, do you expect we'll see consolidation? Do you expect we'll see bankruptcy? Uh, what, what do you think that kind of looks like? Well, yeah, and so you're right. I mean, we are going from 55 to down to wherever we're going and not 100. But the fact that we were at 55 means that you had a certain number of companies, a, a fairly healthy percentage of upstream companies that were already teetering on the edge of non-profitability to begin with at those prices, particularly with a $1.80 natural gas, you know, because everybody has natural gas in their portfolio and you can't make a profit at $1.80 on shale gas. So, so you, you, you already had a subset of companies that were struggling at $55. Well, at $30 or lower, um, potentially, uh, obviously it's not going to take long for those companies to, feel the pinch, particularly those that are heavily leveraged uh, with banks or with private equity. And so, yeah, I mean, I think if this, if this is something that is going to linger on for months and even into next year, then yes, I think you would see a quite a few bankruptcies uh, coming very quickly because, you know, this is all taking place real time today. We're right in the middle of debt redetermination season for the spring. And, um, you know, all those banks right now and all those notes that they are revolving credit lines, whatever they have with the with an operator, they're all this morning, right now, their engineers and analysts are redetermining their price decks going forward and lowering them. Um, <laughs> they so, probably worked the weekend, to be honest with you, David. <laughs> yes, they, exactly. They all worked all, over the weekend to do that. I mean, my wife used to be in that business. I know how it goes. Um, and so, you know, that's what's happening right now. And that, that's going to make it more difficult for this subset of upstream companies that are heavily leveraged to get those notes renewed. And if those notes aren't renewed, if that debt isn't renewed, uh, then you could start seeing filings very quickly. Uh, if, if a producer is not able to meet its obligations, you know, and I'm not going to name names, but we all know the vulnerable, vulnerable com- companies that are out there. So, the net result of that would be, yes, I think you would start seeing consolidation during the second, third, and fourth quarters of this year. 
as the healthy companies, you know, and we all know who those are too, start buying up the unhealthy ones. Yeah, I kind of put like this to someone this weekend. It depends on right now if your client or your your company you work for, you either have the prom queen or you're dating the drag queen, and you're you're about to find out which which end of that spectrum you're on. Because uh, and we hope we all hope we're dating the prom queen right now, of course. But uh, unfortunately, for some of them, it's probably yeah. going to turn out that we're not we don't we don't have the uh, the beauty that we that we that we, uh, that we hoped we did. No, and it's you know, and and I, I wrote a piece at Forbes over the weekend, you know, talking about how. This boom has been enabled um, by the fact that we had that OPEC plus demon, uh, agreement in place, supporting prices kind of artificially because those countries had already taken about two and a half to three million barrels a day off the market due to that agreement. If it wasn't for that, the market would have been flooded and we'd have had $20 oil all along. And, and none of this big boom out in the Permian Basin or in the DJ or in the Bakken would have been able to take place over the last five years. So, so once you yank that, that support out of the market, um, you know, then, then, then the price is going to go down. So the, the shale industry in reality for the last three years, almost two and a half years, uh, has been living on barred time and none of these companies have, you know, made a lot of plans. Uh, yeah. I mean, they all have plans, low price plans in place, but nobody, there's no mechanism in the United States. There's no regulatory mechanism. There's no overarching, you know, industry strategy to control production levels because they're corporations and they can't get together to control, you know, to control production levels in order to influence prices due to, you know, our, our, our laws in this country. And, and, and so, you know, you just had this rush to produce as much as you could and generate as much income as you have. And, and now that price support's gone, and and unless it comes back pretty quickly, uh, you're going to see a, a, a vast reduction in drilling. Okay, so let's talk about that. Um, you know, over the weekend, obviously, there's a lot of people texting and you know, you know, blaming this person, blaming that person. And I, I said, <laughs> I said last week on the Energy Week podcast, David, I said, you know, if, if I if I were Russia or if I were OPEC or whoever, and I had the money to withstand low prices. I would consider going, uh, actually raising production to put the U.S. show you know, to to gain market share. And when you think about it from a country perspective, because we're we're Americans and they're Russians and they're Saudis, it, it doesn't feel the same. But in reality, all businesses they look at it go, can I take more market share? So I, I, I'm not saying that what they're doing from a it's not obviously the the Russians and the OPEC in running a true free market. So I understand that, but it's also hard to go well. They are, you know, whatever their motivation is here, they are trying to take some market share up potentially, or they're trying to structure some other kind of deal or, or whatever you think's behind it. But, you know, I've heard Russia blamed, I've heard Trump blamed, I've heard the Saudis blamed, coronavirus, <laughs> we ain't talked about the coronavirus. I've heard the Texas Railroad Commission because they wouldn't regulate flaring. Um, whose fault is this? I've heard the show producers obviously blame. Everyone, I've heard Josh blame because he's a communist. And so, uh, (laughs) so he's a communist sympathizer. So there you go. So who do you blame David Blackman for this? I don't think there's anyone to blame. I, I, I think it's just the nature of the market as it has developed. I mean, yes, the Railroad Commission, for example, the Railroad Commission has the authority that they haven't exercised in 25 years to control production levels. And so does the North Dakota Industrial Commission, by the way, and the Oklahoma Conservation Commission or Corporate Corporation Commission, uh, which also regulates the industry in that state. And so all three of those regulatory bodies could have stepped in a couple of years ago 
frankly, I wrote a piece in Shell Magazine advocating this, that they should step in and control production levels because we're about to crash the price again if, if, if OPEC plus goes away. And then you're in a situation where you are literally wasting our precious resource at these low prices. And, but, you know, it, that is such a controversial thing for regulators to do in those states. And for every company that wants a regulator to do that, there's another company that doesn't want them to do that. And so you end up with this big controversy where you have blaming Trump. What, what, I mean, how can you blame Trump for any of this? The federal government has zero ability to control uh, drilling levels in the upstream business. Yes. uh, The president's regulatory agenda has made it easier to build pipelines in some States and, and help to enable, you know, the growth in production, but the federal government has very limited ability to actually control anything. Um, blaming the upstream companies. Well, they're responding to pressures from investors. Okay. Their, their whole deal at an upstream or and not just upstream, but all these companies, all, all these corporations is responding to investors in real time. And the investors over the last year have demanded that those companies return a higher rate of return. And so they've all drilled as much as they can and maximize revenues and returned as much of that to the investors as they could. Um, did you blame the investors? No. Why would you blame the investors? They're investing in an industry that has a lower rate of return than other industries they could invest in. So that's a natural thing for them to demand a higher rate of return. Right? So, I mean, it's just, it's just the nature of the market and the way it develops. And uh, if I were to blame anyone, I would look at Saudi Arabia and say, what in the world are you doing? I mean, you already went through 40% of your sovereign wealth fund the last time you crashed the market in 2014. And you haven't recovered that. Now, what are you going to do? You're going to go through another 40% of that in, in another failed effort to grab market share? Because as we saw in 2015, 2016, we had more than 200 bankruptcies in the upstream business. And what happened? All production in the United States went up. <laughs> because when you declare bankruptcy as a company, you don't go away and the production doesn't go away. You reorganize, you re- refinance your debt. Uh, the debtors, un- uh, the creditors, unfortunately, bear most of the of, of the brunt of, of the filing. And then you come out the other side as a company without hardly any debt and, and you're, you're able to operate again and you just keep going. And that's what happened. So, you know, here we have the Russians and the Saudis both, I think, once again, betraying a complete lack of understanding of how the bankruptcy process and, and the market in the United States works. And, so here we are, um, and we'll just, you know, all, all companies, all U.S. producers can do is just sit and wait and see what these two irrational actors do going forward. Well, David, one of the, one of the things that I was uh, wondering about is a lot, of the thing, uh, a lot of the problem that we face in the market for the last, i say, two weeks has been the coronavirus. Um, yeah. And and from from the market standpoint, uh, this it seems to have had much more of an impact on oil price than I believe it should have. And from my understanding, that is one of the things that instigated this uh, issue that we see with the Saudis uh, with the meeting. Um, and so, I, when I say who's to blame, there's there's a part of me that wonders how much impact is the coronavirus having on this. So if you take the coronavirus completely out, yeah, it's having a big hit. And I think. Part of the blame could go to um, 
that as as something I don't know I wouldn't I don't know exactly who to blame or you say the media or um, whoever is instigating all this hype around the coronavirus it's putting uh, pressure on the oil and gas industry that shouldn't be there so I think if if you took the coronavirus out it could be pretty significant this deal with OPEC for sure I I, I can't even imagine yeah. what it would be go ahead yeah and if we want to be mad at anybody in in all this if you're an American and you're in the oil business or, or not, if you're an American, you should be angry at the at our national news media right now for the way they have overhyped this situation with the coronavirus. Uh, and they're doing it strictly for political reasons, in my view, in order to try to damage the Trump presidency. I mean, when, when we had uh, the, the swine flu go through in 2010, the swine flu killed thousands of Americans and infected millions of Americans. And there was no hype like this in our news media. There was no effort to, to create a panic in the population by our news media like we've seen over the last month. Uh, and, and where are we at? We, we have 22 people, unfortunately, who sadly have died from this thing and, and four or 500 people who have been proven to be infected. The flu since September, the common flu has killed 32,000 Americans. And there is no panic in the news media. There's no, there's no daily update on the number of deaths from the flu virus in our national news media. So there's no question that the, particularly CNN is the worst actor of everyone, has made every effort to create a panic in our society over this. And it's had a big impact in, in, in the oil, oil markets and in the stock market. And everything we're seeing today is, is kind of a result of, of this panic that that's growing in the United States. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. There's no doubt that, uh, well, you asked me, you know, yeah, no, that, that's my no, 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 I, I, I agree. I say there's no, I, I think that, um, you know, there's no doubt there's me a bias where you're talking about CNN, NBC, NBC, Fox, whomever. Um, but they, but also, yeah, by I, the way, Fox has really been really bad on this too. So it's not just, no, well, the other thing I'll just say is David is that I, I do agree that there is some political, potential there as well but they but most of these cable networks they need ratings and so <laughs> what else to do but hype up some virus that you think is the you know as the end of the world and, and scare people right. because it, it makes them watch tv and they sell commercials and um you know it, it's, it's kind of funny because uh what was it about about a month ago on this show we broke the news that uh that the russians would be actually working to help by uh bernie and warren and all those folks because of the ban on fracking, and like within three days, <laughs> yeah. all of a sudden Washington Post comes out with it, and you know it's just it's 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 so funny because that it's so obvious to anyone with a brain that um, that the Russians would like to see the U.S. quit uh, you know stop fracking. Uh, it helps oh, it helps sure. their economy, but the mainstream media. I'm just saying that that they're they're they they are some of the dumbest people I've ever seen in my life. They are <laughs> they're they're stupid. They're incompetent. They're they're morons that look good on TV, and that's and so. Um, you know, I was watching something. I'm gonna get on a little rant here for a second because I, I was watching something from CNN uh, yesterday, and they, re I guess, Trump tweeted out a, a clip where Biden stumbled over his words and said that it would be great if we reelected Trump or something like that. And, right. and so he, he cut yeah. he cut yeah. that clip and he retweeted it. And obviously, anyone who watches that, so I've listened to myself on this podcast uh, when I've edited it before say things that was the 180 opposite of what I meant to say. Like, oh, wow, I didn't mean to say it like that. But, but anyone watching the clip obviously knows that Joe Biden wasn't saying, let's endorse Donald Trump. 
It's a joke. It's funny, but they were like, oh, how dare you? I'm like, guys, you bunch of freaking morons. Like, in, it, 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 first off, go read your, your comments in the, in the feed here because everyone hates, everyone that, you, that follows you hates Trump. So they're already piling on. Uh, so he didn't convince any of those people. Secondly, uh, his base already loves him. Thirdly, we all know it. People stumble over the words, especially Joe Biden. And so um, I, they're just some of the dumbest humans I've ever seen. And, you know, it's funny because just I'm old enough to remember, David. You know, you're older than us. So you might remember this. Do you remember when Trump and the Russians were buddies? Do you remember that story? It's been a long time ago. Do you remember that? <laughs> Well, there, I guess some people are still trying to push that deal. You know, Rachel Maddow still tries to push it every night. So, you, you, okay, because it seems like if I mean, it seems like right now that Putin is not doing Trump any favors if they were buddies. I mean, yeah, it, I mean, I'm old enough to remember that. I'm old enough to remember all of the conversation and the talk about it and, and all that going on. And you know, it's like it, it's so frustrating because yeah, it was like five minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> It's so funny because when, 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 whatever you want to say, whatever you want to say about what you think happened there, let's just put that for the side. Obviously, let's say, let's say that Trump and Russia did collude. collude. Uh, well, they're, they're not BFS anymore because uh, the, the Trump administration just sanctioned Rosneft the other day. And then now the, the Russians are trying to put the show producers out of business or, you know, I don't know if actually trying to, but they're, they're, that's the result of their actions. It's like, hey, dumbasses, you know, just use your brain once in a while because it's not that hard. You know, and, and I, I, I'm sorry, David. You, you got me riled up. You should have brought in CNN, David. You should have done it. I'm blaming you for that. Sorry. I'm blaming sorry. you. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't know. Didn't have my didn't have my non-controversial talking. <laughs> no, it's just it's just so frustrating because, um, and, and, and I know you know this. It's just these aren't you know you know Josh and I aren't the brain trust here. So if we can figure out these little things, and surely these folks get paid millions of dollars on TV, can put yeah, two it's two not together. Rocket science. That's right. no, it's not rocket science. It's not rocket science. So. What do you think, though, about speaking of Trump? What do you think? I, I had someone this morning text me quite upset with Trump's response about the gasoline prices. And, um, you know, they felt like he was diminishing the real pain that you're going to see in the industry that, um, you know, hey, these are folks that are going to lose their jobs, lose their money. And uh, here's Trump saying how great the, the gas prices will be. And then, obviously, from a certain standpoint, yeah, the, good, the low gas prices do help um, people in the economy, but they also mean p- people could lose their jobs and houses and, and things like that. You, sure. So what were what your thoughts yeah, on Trump's well, tweet this you morning? Know, but, uh, of course, from an economic, you know, the, the standpoint of the economy, yes, lower oil prices are going to mean lower gasoline prices. And, and for people, you know, the 98% of the population here in the United States that whose jobs are 90, yeah, 98% probably doesn't depend on the industry. Um, you know, that's good news for them, and it's good news it'll be, be a boost for the economy that kind of offsets some of the pain. But, you know, there's no doubt the administration understands that a collapse of the, of the oil and gas industry in this country would have a major spiraling economic impact throughout the whole economy, okay? I mean, it's, it's not like the oil business is isolated here. It, it supports every facet of our economy. And, and so there's going to be spiraling impacts or cascading impacts from a downturn in the oil business throughout the whole economy. And there's no doubt about that. But, yeah, there will be lower gas prices, so that will help some people's pocketbooks to some extent. So let me ask you a few rapid-fire questions here. Let's kind of go through some stuff that we talked about. Do you think, moving forward, 
the um, the Texas Railroad Commission should put those limits on as you argued for whenever you, in, the, in, the, in the Forbes piece you mentioned. Do you think they should do that today? Well, I, you know, no, I thought they should have done it two years ago. Um, I don't necessarily think it would do any good today because if this turns out to be a long-term price war, the, the, that's going to be what the impacts are going to be anyway. Um, you know, I, government efforts to control production and prices uh, are, are very difficult to control, and I'm, I'm always skeptical of, of how much good any government agency can really do anyway in, a situ- in an emergency situation. So as of today, right now, no, I don't really think so. Um, you know, the other part of it is trying to implement allowables like that through that process would take several months. And by the time that all got done, uh, this whole thing could be over. This whole thing could be over before the end of this week if Saudi Arabia really is bluffing Russia, trying to get Russia back to the table here. Um, so, I mean, we're we're talking like this, this is all set in stone. And, and quite frankly, I don't yeah, I still hold out some hope that it really isn't. Uh, but we'll we'll just have to see. But no, as of today, right now, today, I wouldn't advocate. So Trump, uh, President Trump announced, I guess a week or two ago, about um, you know making a strategic reserve sale. Should they postpone that? I know it's a little ways off. Um, oh, definitely, it, they should. Uh, they, they should have never become come a thing anyway. I mean, it's just stupid. Um, so when that when that provision was passed, that was uh, the Budget Reconciliation Act. What uh, last September? Yeah. I guess when they did that uh, CR that had that in it, and oil price uh, at that point in time was over sixty dollars, and and they thought they would raise what I don't know how many billion dollars, forty billion or whatever. Right. And now the price is going to be half of that because uh, that's scheduled for early April, isn't it? Um, if I right. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, so you're not, number one, you're not going to get the budget impact you thought you were going to get. Uh, number two, it lessens our national security in case of a true interruption of, of oil flows from, from Russia and the Middle East. And, and why are you doing it? You're doing it to have a pinprick impact on a, on a budget deficit that's going to be a trillion dollars this year. Uh, you know, so it's not like, it's not like you're making any real difference in, in the total budget picture anyway. So yeah, it definitely ought to, it ought to be the first thing the president does in response to this. In fact, well, president Trump, we know you listen. So there you go. Go ahead and go ahead and take, take yeah, a tell him, tell him I said, so he'll listen. <laughs> <laughs> With the change, uh, Ron sitting, we didn't talk about that because it happened, I guess, between shows you lost uh, the primary and so he will not be returning to the railroad commission do you expect a shake up on the flaring policy moving forward when after the elections are done in november yeah i don't know enough about mr wright uh to to know what his views on on flaring are yet i haven't re- you know he only spent thirteen thousand dollars on the primary so we haven't heard a lot from him I've, I've gone through his website you know and it has some some you know information out there you know he is an advocate for stronger uh uh, uh, regulation of flaring and, and frankly I think probably all the commissioners will be uh, after this election uh, the democratic side you know um, I'm going to forget her name and I apologize to her uh, I think the attorney out of Dallas who is an oil and gas attorney is it Castaneda I'm forgetting her name anyway she'll probably end up being their nominee and um, 
certainly she would uh, be an advocate for much stronger regulation of, of flaring. Um, and I, I, you know, the other side, the other thing that's happening, of course, is the industry itself is, is uh, making efforts now to become a lot more proactive in that space. So by the time election November comes around, uh, we may have already seen a very substantial reduction in flaring in the Permian Basin, and it won't be as visible an issue. But something that, you know, my criticism of the industry, and, and I don't like to criticize the oil business because I love it, but uh, my criticism of the industry has been that this has been a lingering issue that has had a major impact in every shale play for the last 20 years, and uh, it's something the industry should have effectively dealt with a decade ago, and, and here it is still lingering as a, and, and becoming a bigger issue, frankly, this year than it ever has been. And that's just, you know, that's just not a good look for the industry. David, I had uh, something I, I read. Um, I discussed this a little bit with Ryan pre-show. Um, the idea of uh, setting a, a pricing floor for oil, say like $50, where, um, Basically, there was a guarantee that uh, the government would force oil to uh, as mm. low as it could go would be $50. Now, what, you mentioned that there's all sorts of complications when a government agency steps in to do something like that. Um, there are ideas floating around that that might be better than, you know, life with oil, you know, at $25, $30 a barrel. Uh, so, what, you know. What are some of the complications and, and reasons that we don't want to go that route with the government stepping in to do, say, uh, a $50 pricing floor for, for oil? Well, you know, that, and, and of course, we've periodically, uh, during my time in the industry, every time there's a downturn, you, you see mainly smaller independents begin to advocate for that. And, and it's been a consistent thing since the Reagan years, really since the Carter administration, and, uh, you know, never gotten it done. I understand, you know, the. I've always worked for independent producers in my career and uh, understand the needs and concerns of independents around that. But it's like you say, you know, this is an industry that has prided itself on being opposed to government interference in its business. And it's, it's a difficult thing to explain that when times get get bad, suddenly you're asking for the government to save you, right? That's the first thing. The second thing is it's very complex. As, as you noted, it, there's always a price to be paid. Uh, anytime the government intercedes, particularly the federal government intercedes in your business sector, they're always going to exact a price from you some way, somehow. And just because you have an administration uh, right now that has been very uh, friendly to the oil and gas industry. After November, you may end up with an administration that wants to put your industry completely out of business. So the more you engage the federal government in your business sector, the higher the risk becomes of an election going the wrong way. And suddenly, you know, they have this new lever of, of power over your business sector that they didn't used to have. So uh, I would tread very cautiously on advocating that with this particular president because he's so unconventional, he might actually do it to you. <laughs> well, and, and the other thing, David, is is why $50 a barrel? Why not $100 a barrel? Why not $1,000 a barrel? We'd all love $1,000 yeah. a barrel. And so, you know, there, it's the same thing, the, the minimum wage, the livable wage or, or whatever. It's the same argument. It's like, yeah. well, well who, who picks this number? And 
why is it arbitrary? And, well, that's uh, right, you know. because last time, you know, I mean, uh, the first time I saw it advocated in the early 80s, you know, producers were begging the government to guarantee them $20 a barrel. And then in the 90s, they wanted 30 and, you know, and, and so it just depends on where the price happens to be at the time, what you're trying to support, right? And, and yeah, I mean, it's a lot more expensive to, to now be profitable in channel play, so you would need at least a $50 but, you know, the other side of that, from, from, from the government's perspective, when you are looking at a budget where you have a trillion-dollar deficit, you could raise an awful lot of money with a $50 price floor on oil coming in from overseas, man. Just think of how many billions that would raise every year for the federal government. And this is a president who loves to use tariffs, and that, that's what it would be. It would be a tariff on imported oil. Uh, he loves to use tariff to, to, to influence the behavior of other countries. So uh, if, if producers band together and, and request something like that this year, uh, they might accidentally get what they're asking for. President Trump, I am officially asking for a $1 billion podcast per episode relief fund. So, you know, I don't know. Give us minimum money. Four. We'll, we'll fix all this. That's a billion dollars per year for the podcast. So that's what we need. Uh, whatever, <laughs> whatever that runs per episode. We need that kind of base floor. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll go to the end of 500 million right now. But yeah, we want a base floor yeah. for podcast release. So uh, just to get that out there. Okay, David. So yeah, I know we, we talked, covered a lot of ground. Let's kind of circle back around now. Um, one thing you've, you've made clear is this could change tomorrow. By the time this podcast goes out, it could change. Um, but if it doesn't, or, or if we don't hear, let's say no news, not if it doesn't change, which would be no change, but no news, at what point does no news become truly bad news where this is, I had to say beyond the point of repair, but you, you know what I'm saying, like at what point do we go, oh boy, this is really bad? Well, I, I think if, if we get into summer and we're still uh, sitting here with no action being, having been taken by OPEC and the Saudis are flooding the market and you got a $20 oil price, um, you know, if, if this were to linger for two or three months, then it would take the industry many, many months to recover from it, regardless of what happens next. Because um, you're, you're just going to end up at that point with a bunch of companies already having had to declare bankruptcy and, uh, you know, uh, a, an awful lot. Of, well, we have about 820 active rigs right now. You'd have a rig count. I would predict in two months if, if this nothing changes, you'd have a rig count of around 400. Um, and, th and that means layoffs. And that means not just of crews, but you're not, not going to have as many trucks running. So you, you know, it's going to impact truck drivers and it just, you know, it cascades throughout the economy. So that's where you're going to be. And, and, and the problem is, you know, when service companies and, and not just, but, but producers too, any company, when you start laying people off, and even if the market comes back rapidly after that, it becomes very hard to hire those people back because people get laid off, you know, and, and, and you're like, well, my God, I don't want to go back to work for that industry. And, and, and it's something that the, our business does to itself in these situations where you lay all these folks off and then things start to recover and you have to go through that whole process of finding and training up people again. Um, so it's, it's just, uh, it's a tough deal, man. I, I just hope and pray we have cooler heads prevail this week and something happens very quickly. Yep. And as an owner of a service company, I can tell you that's the worst part is that 
we are in such limited control right now. It's really about the balance sheets of our clients, what they decide to do. And, you know, if they, if they start cutting projects, we have no option, you know, and that's where a lot of our listeners are at too. You know, they work for service companies and there is no recourse. There's nothing they can do. There's no, <laughs> I mean, because if, you know, if you're working for, and I'm, I'm making up random names here, but if you're working for Exxon, we'll use big names. You're working for Exxon and Exxon, you know, decides to cut, cut service providers. Well, who are you going to go get? You can go get BP, Chevron, you know, insert whatever name here, Marathon, you go try to get one of those companies. Well, those companies are either cutting their, their service people or, they're, they're locking down, and those service companies are tripling their efforts to keep those clients happy because they know that they can't go pick up Exxon now. And so it really it really hurts the job market, um, as you say, and it makes it hard yeah, it to, really does. to pick folks back up. So, um, again— You know, and the, and the other thing it does, too, you know, when you're talking about from an employee standpoint, is it discourages college students from wanting yep. to major in petroleum engineering and, and, and actually come into the industry out of college. Yeah, so if, if if Trump wants to, if he's doing you know uh, floor pricing, I can send him some uh, basement pricing for our services as well. <laughs> so we can uh, we can get that worked exactly. in there. <laughs> I'll be working for Bernie if I keep it up. <laughs> well, well, David, I'm sure you'll have a lot of stuff this week coming out on Forbes. I suppose where where can folks that want to follow this week? Where can they follow you at and uh, kind of keep up to date with what's what you, what your thoughts are on uh, the news as it develops. Yeah, if you want to follow my writing at Forbes, it's Forbes.com backslash David Blackman, all one word. Uh, and then I'm at Shale Magazine. I'll have a post up this afternoon with some thoughts about it at shalemag.com. And uh, I think we may end up doing a podcast uh, at Shale Magazine on all this uh, sometime midweek as well. So not to compete with you guys, but, uh, you know, I just... Uh, there's a lot to talk about and a lot of news to get out to people. We're like the Coca-Cola oil and gas podcast, David, you know, our next, <laughs> our next competitor is so far down. It's okay. So come on. There's plenty of room. <laughs> of course, after the industry lays off 75%, there won't be anybody listening, but still. <laughs> oh no, that's not going to, let's, let's not say that. <laughs> we, we, we're a long way from there. No, I know we are. I know we are. Hope, hopefully everything will uh, turn on a dime and we'll be laughing about this podcast. Uh, Two weeks from now, going, ah, they cured the coronavirus, or, <laughs> and and the and the Saudis and Russians decide to cut production 100. percent Look at the prices now. So, um, <laughs> for the listeners' perspective, Ellen and I will be recording an episode today as well on her perspective on OPEC and the Saudis. So, if you're curious, what she has to think about that, that will be coming out on Energy Week podcast. So, David, thank you for coming in. We will have a full link of all the articles that Stephanie didn't turn sit in. We did not get to them today because we had David on. He was gracious enough to give us a full, almost a full hour. So, David, thank you for that. But be sure to check out the show notes and Stephanie's articles will all be linked there. And we'll talk to you guys next week.